Our scripture reading is Matthew's um, account of the transfiguration. That story occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic gospels. So I'll be reading from Matthew 17, 1 through 8. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elisha talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, look, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While Peter was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome with fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up. And do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. St. Augustine once wrote, the soul rolls back and forth onto its back, onto one side and then another. Onto its stomach, but every surface is hard. And you, O God, are the only rest. God, as we approach this story once again, help us, even as we roll back and forth, to find rest and then to get up and serve. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So in the New Testament, a little more than halfway through their time with Jesus, he begins to tell the disciples explicitly that as son of man, he will be put to death. The leader and spokesperson for the disciples, Peter, immediately takes Jesus aside and rebukes him for this dire prediction. This must never happen to you, Peter says. But Jesus responds famously to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus then turns to all of his disciples and he says again famously, if anyone want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and pick up their cross and follow me. In each gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each synoptic gospel, Jesus then allows this sobering call to sink in. We do not see Jesus for six days. We do not see his disciples for six days. He then takes his three inner core of disciples. The aforementioned Peter and the two fishermen brothers, James and John, up to a high mountain where the three of them witness 
two dramatic events. Jesus himself is transfigured before their eyes, his face shining like the sun and his clothes becoming dazzling white. And two of the most dominant figures from their Jewish heritage centuries before, Moses and Elijah, appear and talk with Jesus. What Peter and James and John see draws on much of the best of what they have experienced in the Judaism in which they have been reared and into which Jesus has been born. The visible presence of Moses, the liberator and lawgiver, and of Elijah, the first in a great line of Hebrew prophets that stretches through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and Hosea and Micah. Together, Moses and Elijah embody the phrase that Jesus and the Jewish people use for their scripture at the time, the law and the prophets. It is as if the whole majesty of the Hebrew faith, from creation to deliverance to wilderness to land to monarchy to prophecy to wisdom to promised Messiah, is embodied in this brief, light-filled transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain, accompanied by these two towering figures, Elijah and Moses. Jesus' whole being shines like the sun, reminiscent of Moses' face when he received the Ten Commandments, and the entire event occurs on a mountain where Moses had received the Ten Commandments and where Jesus, a few months earlier, had given the Sermon on the Mount. If you worship in a church which follows the lectionary of assigned readings and the seasons of the, of the church year on a three-year cycle, the transfiguration of Christ is one of a handful of stories that appears not once every three years, but once every year on this Sunday. Sunday before Ash Wednesday, the Sunday before Lent begins. Now, for centuries, scholars and preachers have taught that the transfiguration of Christ occurs so that the disciples can be reassured after hearing of his predicted death that he will be raised from the dead. While weeping may endure for a night, joy comes in the morning. It is as if these three disciples are given a glimpse of the resurrected Jesus, arrayed in dazzling white, transformed into what Paul will soon call a spiritual body, so as to survive the upcoming gruesomeness of his death. In this understanding, the transfiguration is a glimpse of ultimate triumph in the distant future, to strengthen them for the pain and suffering of the immediate future that is about to unfold before their eyes and ears. We too need that ultimate resurrection promise to endure the seriousness of Ash Wednesday, the absence of hallelujahs from our Lenten hymns, the stripping of the sanctuary following Maundy Thursday, the darkness of Good Friday and Easter Vigil, as we await the glory of Easter morning and the celebration of that day from sunrise to sunset. 
We need transfiguration to get through Lent and arrive joyously home at Easter. But if the purpose of the transfiguration is simply a reassuring glimpse of the future, then Peter misreads it directionally. Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter excitedly offers to build the three booths of the harvest festival. So that Moses and Elijah and Jesus may remain on that mountain forever. And so that he and James and John can remain with them. Peter is attempting to freeze time. He is preparing for the dark future by trying to avoid it. He is attempting to take what is literally a mountaintop experience and remain permanently ensconced within it, never having to fold up his harvest booths and go down to the mountain to the village below. Standing in the presence of of the entire richness of his religious past, Peter is tempted to remain in it. He is tempted by the past. Earlier this week, federal researchers at the Centers for Disease Control released a youth risk behavior survey. It has generated an appropriately significant amount of press coverage. And the results are frightening. Nearly one in three high school girls said that they had considered suicide. A 60% rise in the last decade. Nearly 15% reported having been forced into sexual encounters. And about 6 in 10 reported sadness persistent enough to have stopped regular activities. So alarming is this report that a local theologian, Diana Butler Bass, has circulated a response entitled, The Girls Are Not Okay. Earlier this week in an email correspondence, With a friend, I was bemoaning the complexity and pressure I sense that that bears down on the family lives of so many of you in this congregation. Even as protected, dare say I, as privileged as many of us are. Whether it is aging parents on one end of the spectrum and children at home on the other that pull parents literally in two directions, often in two different parts of the country, the expansion of drugs and alcohol, the cultural battles about sexual identity and orientation and gender that can so often lose sight of the need for each individual child or youth To be cared for as a unique person with his or her own personality and history and hopes and dreams. The lingering effects of COVID on both learning and life in general. The overwhelming presence of social media on screens in hands and earbuds in ears. 
and the cultural battles over what to teach in school, which can so easily treat children and youth more as political pawns than as unique learners. I was expressing the sheer sadness over what children and youth and parents face today. I just want to go back to leave it to Beaver, I said. (laughs) Even as I know full well that my own upbringing was not as idyllic as the show, that the world wasn't good even for everybody who managed to live near or in it, and that I actually hardly ever watched the show. Don't think you can my correspondent replied, it doesn't exist, not even in fictional TV. I looked it up today, and in fact, Leave it to Beaver only ran for six seasons. It never broke into the top 30 of Nielsen ratings, and it proved much more popular in reruns over the last 40 years than in viewership at the time. It was always a desire to return to a past that exists only in memory. None of us, none of us is immune from desiring to return to a past. A real past, a mythical past, or some combination of both. We are all tempted by the past. But in the story of the transfiguration, even before Peter stops filibustering, the voice of God interrupts. More dramatic, more dramatic and overwhelming than even the visible transfiguration of Christ. From a bright cloud overhead, God speaks, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. There is nothing about the past in the voice of God that speaks. There is nothing about the future. There is only a call to listen and to follow in the present. The person before you today, the voice says, In this time, in this place, is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen. When the disciples hear this, they fall on the ground. And there were no steps to catch them. They are in the fear that is awe and the awe that is fear. But Jesus steps forward and touches them. Doesn't say in the text, but perhaps he touches them on the shoulder or at the hairline. And I imagine he touches them gently. It does say that he says, fear not. Fear 
not. Words he has spoken before. When they lift their eyes, they see no one except Jesus. And he himself is alone. They then follow him down the mountain, into the valley, into the village, to the places from which they have come to serve him in the time in which they inhabit. They are probably still tempted by the past, but they are resolved, at least for the moment, to live in the present. In 1802, the English romantic poet William Wordsworth wrote one of his shortest poems. It's entitled, My Heart Leaps Up. You may have memorized it in high school. My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. So was it when my life began. So is it now I am a man. So be it when I grow old. And let me die. The child is father of the man. And I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. Scholars of Wordsworth have long speculated on the meaning of this poem. But all speculations center around the constancy at the heart of the poem. The constancy of nature symbolized by the rainbow. The constancy of God's promise issued after the flood, also found in the rainbow. And the constancy of Wordsworth's faith throughout all of his days. When my life began, now as I am a man, and when I grow old. In this poem, Wordsworth does not seek to return to the past even as he remembers it well. Rather, he seeks to draw strength from the richness of the past and incorporate it, integrate it, assimilate it into his present and to take it into the future. I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. Perhaps the poem's most famous line, the child is father to the man, which some of you may remember from the Beach Boys or from Blood, Sweat, and Tears, is a bold statement that the adult human being Wordsworth has become has emerged from all that he knew and experienced as a child, the good and the bad and the mixed. The child indeed gives birth to the adult. And in this case, the constancy of God expressed through the constancy of nature is what led him to lifelong faith. My friends, such an integration, such an assimilation, Such an incorporation of what is best in our past can occur in virtually every sector of our life. Personal, intimate, spiritual, family, vocational, cultural, political. 
What is most important is not that we look to the past hoping to move back there even though all the neighbors have departed. Our old home is now painted a different color and our family name is no longer on the mailbox. Rather, what is most important is that we learn from it what is difficult in our past and to take what is best from our past and to incorporate both of these in such a way that they come alive as part of our faith and our responsibility for the present. In this way, the child is indeed parent to the adult for all of us. And we can look to the future answering the call of Christ in our day and in our time and in our life, in the world we have been given, not in the world as we might like it to be. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him in this time, in this place, here and now. Listen. Listen.